0: It's the occult mystery podcast, where we talk about the mysteries hidden behind Mickey. to the occult disney podcast where we take a look at animated disney classics and try to find the secrets hidden behind the mouse i'm just gonna wow. say that i'm gonna say that a different way every week i think and you know we'll see which one sticks we'll land end.
1: on something good yeah
0: yeah uh this is Matt here joining me as always is thomas goren's the paranoid american how Thank are you
1: ya? i'm i'm great and i'm happy to talk about what used to be my favorite movie
0: oh okay cool uh well let's let talk a little bit about where this one is on your radar. Um for me I think I remember like getting off VHS in the mid '80s and, and liking it quite well. And then that video store closing and not being able to find this movie for like a really long time. So really? um, in fact, the next time I remember watching it was about six or seven oh god no almost ten years ago when my daughter was about three four and I was just like okay. You know, let's not watch Dora the Explorer. Let's watch some proper, you know, classic <laughs> animated films. Although I will say, um, watching Dora the Explorer at like 6 p.m., like drinking a beer is kind of fun.
1: <laughs> Have you picked up any any uh, um, special like phrases or extra skills from that show exclusively?
0: Um, I don't know. I run around going, hola, a lot, you know. Like oh, my that wife, that so. counts. Yeah, Technically, yeah, yeah.
1: that makes you uh, multilingual. <laughs>
0: That's right. Uh the Japanese version, because we got the DVDs for Dora in Japan and it's in Japanese. And then when she goes into a different language, that's English. So there's no Spanish anymore.
1: D- dumb question, but do they not have a spin-off Dora that that actually is like exclusive to Japan or to, you know? Uh-
0: I don't different regions
1: because I, I, I always assumed that they would like do you know how there's like a a Russian version of Married with Children and there's like Estonian versions and stuff I just I guess I assume that those really big franchises broke off and had their own versions.
0: Um, I think the the small children um, behemoth in Japan would be the morning NHK uh, kid shows, which all look like they were taking a ton of LSD. I mean they weren't, but. in japan (laughs) they definitely were not but uh yeah they're just really trippy i'll i'll send you a clip of that but yeah uh... (laughs) please man that that actually sounds
1: right up my alley
0: (laughs) yeah yeah uh inai and is one of them which is like peekaboo and the other ones it's like it's been running on japanese television for like 60 70 years it's just like you sing along with mom or that's the translation of the show so
1: (laughs) (laughs) You've, you've piqued my interest we might have to do an episode just on that
0: well one inch, just talking about, you know, like not quite mind control, but they do, they have a dance on with this show. It's uh, this giant dog and a little girl, and the little girl always changes every year as the girls age out, right? But, mm-hmm. Each time they have a new girl they have like a song and a dance and you'll just see like two and three year olds in japan they like memorize like you know every step of this dance and are doing it in front of the tv and stuff so you know talking about <laughs> i mean it doesn't seem like nefarious mind control but it definitely is mind control of a certain uh of a certain well point.
1: i mean in in uh, like nlt terms it would be anchoring in some ways uh and just like patterning where you just kind of like rehearse the same thing over and over but i mean little kids love you know repeating dances right isn't that like one of the the most classic things for little kids to do
0: yeah i'm just watching it thinking man i couldn't memorize that dance but i I guess you're you know you're you never I mean, open mind
1: you clearly haven't uh hit the top leaderboards on ddr
0: no when i when i do when i dance i look like uh, groucho marx basically so (laughs) i could do groucho marx dancing that's about it (laughs) um so i be a,
1: a little bit creepy yeah
0: So anyway, yeah, I I had a fond memory of this movie. Didn't see it for a very long time. And uh, maybe it's just like the third time I I saw it last night. But uh, you're you're calling it. We couldn't be more
1: different. We couldn't be more different because out of all of the Disney tapes that that I had growing up, I think this one probably got the most plays. It was right around there with Pinocchio and Dumbo, probably. And I think I might have remembered this one as being my favorite because it had very specific scenes that I, you know, um, that I, I still remember today, and I loved watching the animation of it again. Although on a rewatch, it wasn't as good as I remember. So I definitely <laughs> killed a little bit of the magic because I haven't seen this movie for uh, well over a decade. Um, so it was kind of cool going back and revisiting it and you know, seeing where maybe it was greater or worse than some of the other ones that we've seen already. Uh, th- it's actually really fun watching them all in order like this and seeing the progression cuz it's it's messing with my, m- my nostalgia for sure.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I, another thing um I guess because of the way the video boxes looked I guess a clamshell with the you know mm-hmm. white box and like the red and orange stripes. I'll be curious how close I was And about it's got that. like that
1: puffy touch to it too. That's got yeah, like that yeah. tactile.
0: So I couldn't find I mean, this if one. you want
1: to talk about programming that that <laughs> whole package and the exclusivity of it and like literally that little puffy feeling where it's it feels different than just grabbing like a, a hard pointy square I mean have you ever stepped or, or like kind of gotten hit by the, the very corner of a VHS box Um <laughs> like those things will hurt you you know what I mean it's right, like yeah. only a few steps away from a, a big lego
0: <laughs> <laughs> right exactly but um because of that video clamshell case, I think I ended up like associating because I this video store closed. I couldn't get sword in the stone. So we were like at a at a different video store. And I, oh this case is similar. So I was expecting it the same feeling from say Darby O'Gill and the Little People or Bed Knobs and Broomsticks because they specifically had a similar box. Right. So mm. I would rent those a lot so I probably saw those movies more than this one but I was trying to see this movie so (laughs) that's it that's
1: actually interesting I wonder how many people out there you know lean towards getting that certain type of box just because of like the feel and the look and uh, I guess there was sort of like an implication that it might have been slightly more family friendly like I don't think you'd ever see like a Jason or like a triple x movie that comes in like a puffy box right (laughs)
0: <laughs> nice welcoming box well um, some of those early widescreen VHS might actually hit tick that because they were in the bigger boxes I don't remember if they were puffy but uh, yeah you might get a Jason X or something in one of those boxes so. they were
1: so annoying too though because you either had to put them on their own shelf or had to have like a non-standard setup you know in order to like mix and match regular VHS with the big puffy VHS boxes and all the <laughs> weird like limited editions and stuff
0: um, another thing that I do my, all, pretty much all my reading on a Kindle now, but or well, on the Kindle app or whatever. but um last when I was buying books regularly, I started to notice after a while that I tended to buy books with like brown or orange covers. It, it, hey, it's those, it's those uh, video box covers almost again, weird. So yeah, programming, anchoring, there we go. Yeah, i wonder what you're missing stone. out on
1: too like like what's out there that's like in a in a pink and green box that you just haven't seen it might have been like the coolest thing ever
0: well now that i'm reading electronically uh you know for reading i you know doesn't the covers don't matter as much right so <laughs>
1: except for when you go to buy them right i'm sure you're looking at the covers when you go to buy the book for the first time
0: yeah yeah i guess that's true but yeah yeah i, I guess it looks like parchment or something like a history book on parchment is like my goal for like a you know, a cool book or something. I don't know. <laughs> so lots of grimoires. Yeah, I just got. Someone gave me some books just yesterday, and I'm noticing even those were given to me, and they're in similar colors. Uh, some of the I Ching and tarot books. So <laughs> you could also
1: just start collecting <clears throat> books based on the color, so that you can kind of just you know color the room in like an your house. way. Yeah, yeah exactly.
0: Yeah. I, th- those are my horse blinders, right? <laughs> <laughs> um. So this is is. Is this one like sword in the stone is no longer your, your favorite then? Uh for for multiple reasons, but we'll, we'll have to
1: slowly ease into it because I'd rather I'd rather start with all of the, the parts that I liked about it and some of the very minor criticisms, and then we can talk about why it's maybe not my favorite one anymore. Okay. Uh, I, so... I, I
0: I have one sentence just that again, uh I, I do like yeah, this I saw, one, I saw some I of the, your the notes. Screen. You had some great ones. <laughs> <laughs> I guess um Go positive, but the one statement that I kind of came down on at the end is like, nothing really happens in this movie. <laughs> I
1: saw that and I wanted to disagree so much with yep. you because I, I had some notes that was very, like, really cool points on how they twist the story and they kind of, like, make it work for this animated version. But a lot really doesn't happen, right? So they <laughs> they wash some dishes poorly uh, they just like turn into a bunch of different animals, which is kind of his training. Like that's his main training with the the wise old mentor is they get chased by squirrels. Uh, they get chased by some kind of like a, fi- I didn't bother to look up the exact type of fish they're getting chased by, but it's like some nasty uh, fish with like, you know, huge jaw and jagged teeth and then they turn into birds. Yep. Um, and that's kind of the, the entirety of King Arthur's training and that qualifies him to pull a sword out and then you get the the end and then it ends abruptly. Uh, So that really is like, that's the entire story.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So now in this case, like I know in some of the earlier films, I was like, man, they're really padding out for time here. It's like, well, all the vignettes kind of work. I mean, you know, you, you'd actually like, if we did take out those little animal adventures as, you know, eight, 10 minute cartoons, they all work quite well and they work quite well together because they're similarly themed, but when we're talking about the authorian legend and you know it's kind of like a squib it's like you know oh you like Darth Vader well here's a child and he's he's sad as as Patton Oswalt did in his bit
1: <laughs> yeah, this is a little bit of like an Anakin story in that way right <laughs> the, the young kid that's like thrust into uh to leadership before he's kind of ready for any of it but I agree. So I, I do agree begrudgingly that there is no real story here compared to what it's really about. But it's sort of like those training wheels that are supposed to get you interested in riding like a real bike, right? So maybe you see this movie and then you get interested in the actual are um, you know, um Arthur's Tales and Merlin, and because that's actually a really cool backstory when you get into like the historical equivalence of some of the things that they're based on. Um, but the the movie itself. I love it because you can look away and look back and know exactly like the progress in the movie. Like so many other movies we've seen before, maybe outside of Pinocchio, but they don't like change incredibly visually. They keep revisiting like the similar, you know, locations and this one, it's just like they completely change and and morph into completely different animals. It's like a different um, musical theme for each one. And I kind of, I love how quickly it kind of moves through them all. Yeah, and yeah, lots of lots of um like like comic animation like overextended animation uh, where they're getting a lot more cartoony i think than some of the previous ones
0: i i know in my house i'm i'm pretty I, yeah we had the once in future king on a, i think hardback on the bookshelf um i never i don't think i quite made the connection because it doesn't like say King Arthur, right? You know, for an eight-year-old that matters, and it was like way too thick, so I never actually read it. Um, <laughs> I'm not well, sure. And, I... and
1: a, well, it's it was like a compilation of multiple books that came out as the. I'm going to get some of this wrong because I'm not. I'm definitely not an expert on it, and I haven't read them all. But it was like four, and then a fifth one came out after he died that was supposed to. Uh, wrap up but it didn't it was supposed to be released but world war ii was happening and it was passing this message of like pacifism which wasn't super popular at the dawn of world war ii Uh, so it kind of got suppressed and wasn't released with the rest of his big stories but the the actual story is is quite long and and i basically forms the basis of things that many people have seen like harry potter uh neil gaiman said that that his version which was what king percy and versus I can't remember the, the name of it. It was this one in Harry Potter always get conflated. And he basically said they both were just ripping off of uh, this story.
0: Um, here, I got the titles for you. Uh, the Sword and the Stone is the title of the first one, which is basically what this kind of world well, is as far as a Disney movie ever is its source material. Uh, the Queen of Air and Darkness, the Ill-Made Night, the Candle in the Wind, a uh, charge title these days, and a the posthumous one is is the book of merlin um i'm I'm also noting that this first edition is the one that was on my bookshelf so i wonder if i should tell my parents it's of some value or not i don't know (laughs) looks like they at least have the cover of a first edition so because yeah that's the thing the spine of the book and the cover of the book really did stick in my mind the once and future king i was like that's confusing right so um but i was kind of like intimidated by it as a kid um I don't know if I'd enjoy it, though. I can't get through Tolkien, so. <laughs> I don't know if it's Tolkien. I
1: mean, actually, I, I don't think it would be equated as much because Tolkien loved getting into, like, names and locations, whereas this one was really about this guy's struggles as a kid coming out as, you know, him becoming this this legend and uh, being magical and being able to, to sort of, like, Replaces childhood through these stories well again like the the historical aspect of this is where it starts getting really sad
0: <laughs> now something I, I guess the book gets in this is almost the reason I kind of like would like to at least maybe stick my nose in a little deeper I'm pretty confused about Merlin and this movie definitely um kind of like I mean they make them like they, they hint like Merlin is basically living in through time backwards isn't it <laughs>
1: So I think that Merlin exists outside of time. Like he doesn't he doesn't adhere to the same rules that mere mortals would be adhering to. So like for example, he jumps over to Bermuda, right? And yeah. he specifically talks about the 20th century and he comes back and he's wearing like sneakers and uh, like a button-down shirt. So he's clearly coming from the the 60s which just went, you know, came out in 63. So he kind of came out bounces over to the 60s and then jumps back and I think the story is supposed to take place around the year 1100 and that's kind of reconfirmed because at one point he shows the map and it's a flat earth <laughs> Uh it says terra firma and then he shows that oh here's this globe that's going to be invented in 1492 and he kind of hints and explains a little bit of that to Arthur or Wart that you know this isn't what the world is now but it's what it's going to be in the future so he clearly has like lived in all these different time periods or has been through them all. I don't, I don't think he had like a like a Benjamin Button Matrix thing where he was going from future to past. I think that he just gets to jump around. And and my note here was like, it's almost like quantum leap. You know, he he's kind of like Sam Beckett a little bit,
0: Merlin, and a little bit of on. Al. He's a,
1: he's a little bit of Ziggy too, like the the forgetful weirdness of Ziggy. We always gotta like slap it on the the side of the head to get the right answer. <laughs>
0: yeah for sure. but yeah I just i I guess I like being confused by by that. That's like kind of the fun of the story in a way. like what is this guy? <laughs> well he's he's blasted out of his mind the entire movie clearly
1: <laughs> <laughs> like he he can't even leave the house without getting his beard caught in the door uh after he's just been like smoking on his pipe the entire time. So he you know, they set like a a very specific archetype for this bumbling old man, which I kind of I kind of liked, but I didn't remember that as much as a kid that was one of the things that stood out was like wait a minute archimedes is actually the brains of this operation and he's kind of you know pinky
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's like uh he's got what is his magical tobacco and magical mushrooms and and all of that to (laughs) keep him magical i guess
1: and he he lives out in the middle of the woods and he just like turns into animals and and just kind of like chills with nature all day so he's He's definitely representing this kind of like nature magic, which is interesting. Uh, since they're they're asking him at one point, like, well, you don't do that black magic, do you? And he's, Oh no, I don't, I don't do any of that. <laughs> uh, but clearly, I mean, some of the things that he does in this movie, I would assume would would be black magic. Like yeah. he turns in he turns into a German and essentially could have killed somebody, which feels to me like black magic.
0: Yeah, he's uh you know a tool is a tool so you you can on a dime i guess use it a different way right <laughs>
1: so i so i didn't believe him there i think that was just to make sure that he didn't die because they probably would have killed him uh on site if you admit to being a black magician uh although they also seem kind of scared of him even though the the strangest thing that he did to the dad was made it snow on him and that was enough to to scare him off
0: yeah yeah they they did yeah, they're those are quite forgettable characters, aren't they? I mean, you you know, like uh, Wart or Arthur and Merlin and Archimedes all stick in your head quite well, and the uh, the the well, just kind of popping and out. <laughs> they don't get a lot of screen time,
1: and also it it's a it's, it's interesting because there's almost like a fight over who gets to be the dad uh, originally. And first, it, they're talking about how Arthur Pendragon is like an adopted orphan, and that you know he's just looking after him. Um, but he's not like his real dad, and then Merlin is basically stepping in and trying to be that that father figure, uh, which is kind of there's like, some creepy connotations to that, I think.
0: <laughs> but the, old, the old, and they also old represent
1: witch. obviously the like the smart versus the bronze thing, right? So like the redheads are like the brawny knights, and that represents you know strength and brute force, and and as they say like you know predators and searching for prey, and then. Merlin is kind of like this effeminate, you know, intellectual, time traveling, artistic guy. So it's this constant battle between, you know, are you going to pursue these like lofty magical arts or are you going to go and work into manual labor? And that's sort of like the other context behind all of that.
0: But the climactic moment of him uh, getting the sword is just dumb luck. I mean, he's just running through the alley. like I gotta find a sword, right? <laughs> I mean, there's no. Well, I mean, it, but if you if you follow the premise of the movie, it's not dumb
1: luck because when it first starts, Merlin already knows like where this kid's at and what he's going through at that moment. Like you know, like when they're shooting the arrow and they miss, and he has to run into the woods. Like Merlin already knows all these things are happening, which again is. I could not not think of quantum leap because quantum leap, they go back into the past, but they already know what's supposed to happen. And they just have to like, make sure that the certain milestones actually happen in order to get that final outcome as it is in the history books. So it almost feels like maybe Merlin's been through this a few times and this might just be, you know, try number 50, something for him. So it, it might not be like this very specific linear past. I think that he's got that kind of ability that he can, you know try this over and over again which makes even more sense when he like hops over Bermuda he might have like went all the way back and restarted to before they met again and then we see the movie as Arthur's ready for that you know sword in the stone but the point being is that the entire movie it's all about Merlin directing him towards the exact events that need to happen in order for him to pull that sword out which is a big plot gap in my opinion because he's not ready for it like this kid is way underqualified but uh, but i feel like it was architected in that way and maybe yeah, i'm yeah, just yeah. giving too much credit to merlin because he's got a sick beard
0: <laughs> that's why he's um giving a, a almost literal crash course and not now you're making me think like how many iterations of this did mort meet horrible deaths as an animal you know because <laughs> all of the animal adventures seem quite dangerous <laughs> Well and they also pick like very very
1: fragile sorts of uh, ecosystems in order to to prove themselves, right? Like they don't they don't immediately turn into elephants and then figure out the natural predator for that and they don't turn into some kind of animals that would get hunted by humans. That would have been interesting if if his brother ends up hunting and like killing Merlin. That would have been a little bit more engaging, but yeah, it's the animals they ch- they choose to turn into is weird, especially when you look at the backs Story of the author uh, which again I'm going to keep teasing some of these little notes but he he ends up in real life moving out into the woods and kind of becoming like this feral you know woodsman or at least he he wanted to be um, and it didn't go so well for him but he wanted to train hawks and and re-watching some of these scenes where the hawk is this big predator that's taking out the prey in real life version that the actual author of this would have been absolutely massacring those little squirrels, you know, day in and day out because he was training this hawk to go out and hunt. So, you know, the the actual predator in one of these sequences is a hawk in the sky. So it was just a, a interesting dichotomy there.
0: Uh, I was also thinking watching this movie this time of uh, especially some of the, the Western tribes in the States with sort of a, is is I guess that's kind of the skinwalker vibe like inhabiting an animal being able to shape form. shift and yeah, yeah 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 um that the skinwalker version of course being a, a creepier version of it but uh i guess that's i mean i always get to smell of black magic on that but i guess you could also use that for something useful we just you know it's fun to talk i still think like turning into versions. a germ
1: is way creepier than any skinwalker uh story
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 for sure um <laughs> Uh, I guess you're you teasing the author, and we'll get to that. But uh, just as far as we've got, we've got
1: plenty of animation notes here too.
0: Well, I was actually just gonna jump into this is the uh the start of the Sherman brothers doing like everything for Disney for the next twenty years or so. I mean, they do the movies, they do the rides, you know. Are, are you? I didn't know they it?
1: did the rides. Oh, are you mean the animation for the rides?
0: Oh, I'm talking about the music.
1: mm Hmm. Mm
0: like uh because uh, it's a great big beautiful tomorrow um is is their song and uh what are some other ones but yeah they do this They're, they, i think they do a lot of the music for the jungle book for aristocats and and so on so they become a pretty notable part of disney for about 20 years from this point on
1: so so one of my favorite songs uh i had to look up the lyrics because i swear that what i was hearing was not the same as what was posted um, on some of like the tv <laughs> scripts and i had to, to i had to re-listen to it a few times and then resource some of them but some of the the audio for it it's uh you see my boy it's nature's way upon the weak the strong ones pray the human life it's all so cruel the strong will try and conquer you and that is what you must expect unless you use your intellect so that story right there I mean, that I think fits the author so well, but also it was such a like a weird, dark sequence the way that they sing it, and he's kind of like, like humming him to himself. It's at the very tail end. and technically that little um some of those little quotes are after like the quote unquote song ends and it be- turns into like movie dialogue. and that's why I wasn't finding it in all these different lyric source and TV script because it would always like end at the end of the song and then not show this extra little bit. But I just thought that that was. Uh, uniquely dark and uh, insightful
0: <laughs> mumbling universal truths I, I suppose <laughs> Um, well let, let's I guess let's talk about the the author a little bit because uh, I'm not particularly familiar I actually had to make I, I had to check I was wondering if th meant that it was because you know like a, a lot of female writers would use initials to mask the fact that they were female but yeah this is Tim so that that's not a a lady <laughs>
1: it, and i didn't know a whole lot about him either uh it was just a, a name that i'd heard before because of you know um just sort of like history trivia and looking into him it was this weird recurring theme that keeps coming up and i'm not even going to go into like the, the intricate details but he essentially was an old dude that became very fond of a young boy and developed affections to him uh and then he it got to a point where it became creepy and the, the kid and his mom sort of like cut off contact with him and it was this kid named zed i guess and it kind of like haunted him for the rest of his life and it and it ostracized him and he felt that he couldn't develop regular uh relationships with people and this is why he kind of turned to nature he ended up getting the hawk that went horribly uh well for or it went horrible for him because he didn't know how to train a hawk he i guess he overfed it a little bit Uh, Because he just kept trying to treat it so that he would bond. And I guess in order to actually train a hawk, you kind of have to starve them a little bit and keep them in that fight or flight mode of of survival. And then you become their only source of food for a while until you train them to hunt. Well, he skipped that part and just fed it all the time, thinking that it would become his friend. And it was just like, well, I don't need you. I'm full all the time. Like, what what good are you for? And it just flew away one day. and, And that was the end of it. And he wrote a book about it. Um, but but it's interesting because I guess as an early age, he got ridiculed and bullied, and it um, it just like completely devastated him. I guess he he just felt withdrawn from society. And he has some quotes out there about how he was more afraid of humans than of God, or like I'm paraphrasing that a little bit. Uh, but that this experience of him just going through school and being bullied and tormented just absolutely shaped his entire view of the world, and this is where. The roots of this story really come from, and that the creepy connotation here is that if you look, rewatch this, the movie with this backstory in mind, it's about this old dude that lives in the middle of the woods that creeps up on a little kid and takes him away from his family and wants to become the father figure because he sees this spark in him and that you know he puts his all into everything and if only I can turn him in the right direction, then he'll be able to you know pull this sword from the stone and if you want to get into the occult symbolism pulling a sword from the stone is essentially removing the active masculine aspect of something from the passive feminine aspect so he wants this little kid to go out and remove the sword you know from this passive stone which it's it's super weird and and it ruined the movie a little bit for me
0: <laughs> well i think we've been finding on this podcast the more whimsical the original author the more disturbing their history gets
1: and and not just that there's an extra level to this particular movie and i and i hope i'm not just like reading into that and then seeing it you know like predictive programming myself into into seeing things that aren't there but it seems like they do lean into that archetype a little bit in in a few of the dialogues and just like the things that uh, they say but maybe there's just something inherently weird in uh in western culture at least about old dudes that are unrelated to young kids and you know seeking them out and wanting to be the mentor like actively to the point where they're like actually no I'd rather kind of just fight and be a squire and wash dishes I don't really want to do all this weird nature stuff and it's like no, no no no, trust me like this is the right way I don't know there's, there's a the very weird aspect of that watching it as an adult with with the, the backstory of all that
0: well, yeah I mean this movie was on such a, a simmer because this was one of the ones that was on the, like they were thinking of doing it before world war two and, you know, had to go off through the war films instead. And this got greatly delayed, but it showed up at kind of a, you know, this is actually a pretty solid time. in I guess American society for this, because they, the musical Camelot was 1960. So that was on people's minds. You know, the Kennedy, um, presidency was was seen as camelot too so this it was a good time i guess for this legend to hit although yeah I and mean, he
1: got to see all of it too in his lifetime he got to see all of these reproductions or, or a great number of them at least
0: they didn't show this one in the woods did they no <laughs> I, I did see he died on a, a boat on a lecture tour so he did leave the uh for a sometimes apparently
1: oh yeah well, well again he sucked at it you know he it was it was <laughs> was less of a Walden experience of like I want to rely on myself and it was more of I just hate people so much it was just such a, a misanthrope that he just wanted to become a recluse but then realized that he never developed like all of the survival skills that it takes to become a full-on recluse so he, he you know he ended up dying on a cruise ship I believe uh, yeah that's, of, that's like what a heart I
0: attack <laughs>
1: yeah so so yeah he, he clearly didn't the life wasn't cut out for him he, uh he moved it out he fattened up a hawk that ran away and then he wrote a sad book about how much he sucked at training Hawks and then went back into society
0: okay yeah but yeah it's just then you get the the weird leching, which is just like yeah that doesn't that doesn't sound fun um <laughs> one of the... Uh, let's see what I got Merlin is so high um Merlin is a shade away from dementia uh <laughs> What what do you got for me? I guess we're <laughs> reading weird notes at the moment.
1: Uh, well, honestly, the the difference between being a magician and having dementia might be a quite of a blurred line, you know, because to any outside observer here, and and you had a note that that was interesting that his magic has no power over you if you don't actually believe in it, right?
0: Yeah, that's he kind of mentions that like if uh especially when he's, you know, I guess taunting the 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 father and the uh surrogate brother that he's like, Well, they if you don't believe this, it's not gonna happen. But that is notable because uh you know, just how you see your own reality and if, if you're not willing to accept those sorts of things, you're not gonna see that sort of thing.
1: But, but well, I guess in that context, in that exact context that you just laid out, what would be the difference between dementia and just like a shared hallucination? Uh, it would just be the difference of you, you don't see the same thing, but the second that you agree with it, if you can also see it, then it's almost like a contagious form of dementia, which in itself might be like the big battle scene, right? Where they're changing into different animals, or even when Arthur and him turn into squirrels and the fish and the birds maybe that's all just him putting him under spells um and and again it might be maybe arthur wanders into this old dude's shed in the middle of the woods he offers him a drink and a a smoke or maybe just the contact eye and the rest of the movie is just a dream sequence
0: yeah it's kind of like a like a weird twist of the carlos castaneda don juan sort of vibe where (laughs) Carla, you know, keeps stumbling into Don Juan's uh, well in in the desert in this case, and uh, you know, having to fight the uh, not fight, but get past the guardian of the threshold, sort of stuff. I mean, that's kind of what we're seeing here, I guess. That's an interesting one too. I remember on on a tangent for that, that when I read
1: it, I completely read it as a fictional account that might have been inspired by you know real life experiences, but there was a, a slightly um small little uproar where apparently it was originally written and professed to be like 100 percent accurate story and then it came out later it was like oh yeah it was actually you know just kind of like a, a story story not like a biographical account um i don't know if you ever if you ever heard any of that
0: oh yeah i heard plenty of that um it, but when i read them i mean you're really in there for like the ideas which yeah, I, mean, I don't know who's reading that book and expecting a, a historical
1: biographical account that they can look back up and use in like a research paper. It was very much a subjective version of, you know, something that you couldn't really record.
0: I think it was being pushed as, uh, maybe anthropological, so people in that discipline were not particularly happy.
1: Okay, yeah, just kind of like filling in the gaps, like, oh yeah, there was a shaman dude, and he he had like a bone through his nose, and he gave me a mushroom.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, maybe he was just, you know, Carlos might have just been getting high in the desert and trying to put a nice narrative on it, so. But, uh, yes, if you're looking from, like, a, you know, academia, anthropological perspective, he's he's definitely committing some some sins there.
1: I mean, on that same note, you know, is there any anything wrong with portraying Merlin as just having, like, this pointy hat and a gown? That, that almost feels like shoehorning Merlin into a very specific... Uh, type of practice and culture that he might not have originally been part of
0: yeah but this I think this is the first image that comes to mind now when people say Merlin I I know there was like a BBC Merlin show like 10 years ago that I didn't see and I think they you know went and had him look maybe young I think it's like young Merlin or something but uh that's
1: actually a, a great point with the little pointy hat and the and you know the long wizard beard and even the glasses um, but the the old man Merlin with that pointy hat, it does get established very early on by Disney. and I and I wonder too, if you want to go back into the programming aspect, right? It's almost like there would be a fight for who can decide what these um, evergreen, everlasting characters that are gonna, you know, possibly last for hundreds of years beyond this. Whoever gets to, to make the most impactful character and instill that in everyone's mind kind of wins. Uh, and and Disney very likely takes up a non-zero percentage of many people's brains on the planet just from things that you might not even realize. Right, I found out the other day that technically Disney uh, gets royalties from Insane Clown Posse albums, uh, and that The Great Malenko was produced <laughs> under uh, under one of Disney's record labels at the time. But they but Disney themselves actually make. Uh, all of the royalties off of the Great Malenko ICP album. So, so I'm just I'm just throwing this out there because Disney's influence on pop culture and what you consider to be magic and wizards and everything like it's almost the same conspiracy theory where Stanley Kubrick directs 2001 Space Odyssey. And then also directs the NASA moon landings because he is first establishes with the world. Here's what space looks like. Here's what zero gravity looks like. Here's how things work in space. Here's how the technology kind of looks. And then once everyone kind of agrees like, oh, okay, that's what the movies say. That's what space looks like. Then they can direct the moon landings and show you that same sort of physics and the same sort of, you know, um, aesthetic. And they've already kind of like pre-planned it. So I think there might be something very similar going on in Disney on all these other aspects, right? Like here's what magicians look like. Here's what magic looks like. And then they get to like own that. So then if they actually do real magic, they can purposefully make sure that it's nothing like the way that it's depicted and vice versa.
0: Yeah. We saw as we called Fantasia, the casting of the Disney spell. I mean, this comes, this is that sorcerer's apprentice strain. I mean, Merlin is much more, you know, like um, whimsically lovable in this movie, of course, than the magician, the sorcerer's apprentice, but kind of the same vibe. Otherwise, uh, even here, Mickey Mouse he he screwed up when he tried to do the cleaning spell, but uh, Merlin's at least together enough to uh, pull that one off.
1: Actually, I'm glad you brought that one up because. I wonder what the difference is between a malevolent wizard that is I mean technically Mickey screwed up in Fantasia he wasn't supposed to get in over his head and you know take over that was almost like if Arthur just tried to go and rip the the stone out of the sword before he had any training before he had any kind of magical knowledge um but in in this case the wizard is just Sort of absent, you know, and he's not really to get like Archimedes is absolutely the brain. He saves his life a couple times. He knows the spells that the wizard can't remember because again he's blasted out of his mind. So without Archimedes, this is just a tragedy, you know, every single time. He has to keep replaying this this uh you know version of history until he gets it right so many times, which is why I think it's it's at least in the double digits by the time he actually gets Arthur into that chair. But it, it almost feels worse, like as a kid you don't want the mean wizard right you want the nice friendly wizard that's like laughing and joking with you and he's your pal but in reality you kind of needed that mean wizard of fantasia to prevent mickey from creating all this nonsense and and here merlin without archimedes this kid dies every single time right 10 times out of 10 the kid dies
0: yeah i mean i I guess it's a little bit different than the pinky and the brain thing in that um, Archimedes has the brain. Merlin does have the ability um, but yeah, he doesn't have the brain.
1: But it's a bit we've established though, his ability might very much just be a con man. He might just be a, such a good soothsayer that he convinces you that his magic is real but it might not be real because if you don't believe in it, then it doesn't have an effect on you, which means that it's not real.
0: Well, that's still a uh, notable ability to have if you can pull that off. <laughs>
1: Yeah, conning, I suppose Conning so. <laughs> people is a good ability, <laughs> but but again, the, the 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 connotation of an old con man that lives in a shack in the woods taking your kid away is way different than a wizard that's going to magically train you, right? Like it, like the the two of those are the exact same thing, but they have vastly different sales pitches.
0: And then we got Madame Mim, who is all like malevolent whimsy, like she just and- wants to destroy you i'm gonna destroy you she keeps saying that right <laughs> and and this is probably like one of the most interesting tropes
1: to me is this like mean old uh haggard witch because the roots of this is really uh prior to social security and like welfare services once you had this old maid and her husband would die so you'd have like an old widow in town everyone would just see this poor old lady kind of like rotting away and if you didn't live in a nice neighborhood and we're talking you know 1100s uh, or earlier um but you you see these this old lady that's widowed living by herself that just a burden of society always complaining because she's aching and she's probably got some things wrong with her so people would start to develop stories about oh that old lady she's a witch and this sort of turns into that archetype of like the old angry witch with the pointed hooked nose and the mole and everything Because the more that you denigrate these, you know, your aging population, it's so much easier to avoid them or think that, you know, they've brought this old age and all of the ailments on themselves because of all the black magic they've done over a lifetime. Uh, And it's really kind of a a wicked, nasty backstory for that entire archetype because it, it justified abandoning old people. And once a lot of those kind of villages Um, And different municipalities began starting their own versions of like, you know, prototypal sort of social welfare um, programs that archetype slowly started going away, uh, at least in the the same amount that it used to be around. But it lives on today. So you still have these like ugly old witches. And it really just refers to, you know, an easy way to ignore old people.
0: No, when you were talking about that, what started popping in my head was uh, the somewhat more modern equivalent the uh old lady and donnie darko if you've seen that movie because that's kind of how they're viewing her it's a lady who's you know just that getting and she's in the december of her years you know she's not all there and they're kind of like creeped out about her in a similar way so what what makes
1: merlin any different than a crazy old cat lady i mean he's just a crazy old owl guy right
0: well, he isn't directly threatening to destroy you. I guess that helps. <laughs>
1: I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I Madame
0: mean, Mim is 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 the the fear personified of what people think of the old lady. It's like that's this is who they think she is and she is in this movie.
1: <laughs> but it but at least you know what you're getting into. Uh, with Merlin, he just cons you into death, right? He just cons <laughs> you into like you know, turn into a fish and swim with me. All you got to do is believe, and then you immediately get eaten because his owl was asleep and didn't wake up at the exact right time. Uh, so, I still, again, I think, in practical sense, uh, at least, Mim would give you a better chance of survival than Merlin would.
0: The sucker puncher, <laughs> <laughs> if you, if you need to. And um, and
1: I, I want to add a little bit of credit to my theory here that that this is all fake and con man or that, that he was, you know, luring this kid here in that the very original meeting starts when he causes his, his, um stepbrother, not a stepbrother, but you know, his, his adopted um, brother, he sh- causes him to shoot the arrow out in the middle of the woods. I don't know if you've ever shot arrows into woods before, but if it leaves your sight, like you're not finding that arrow ever again, uh, it would, it would take such a long time to find it. And he just runs into the woods and immediately sees it, which makes me feel like the wizard had put these arrows, you know, like a little like breadcrumbs the same way that, you know, almost a reverse Hansel and Gretel where he was leading this kid into his, his hut.
0: Maybe. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm always, you know, I love, I love the theory that turns the uh, thing you watched on end. So, <laughs> and then getting into his place, I, I do have the note. Um, is is the tea kettle experiencing a, a Beauty and the Beast kind of hell? This is going back to Mer- Merlin does magic. Uh, you know, if you've had a few of his mushrooms, maybe the the not the tea kettle will move on its own anyway. But uh, do do you remember that there's kind of a cartoon tea kettle like tromping around on the table? I'm tr- I'm trying to remember a little bit. I don't remember that exact scene.
1: No. Is is this when they're doing the the washing scene?
0: No. This is right at the beginning when he first goes to Merlin's hut. Okay. I, I believe yeah actually well yeah no, i'm not sure okay anyway i just i just started thinking of beauty and the beast which is a movie i haven't seen yet by the way so <laughs> uh, you mean ever ever that's that's one i just always skipped um how did
1: you skip that that was that was peak 90s wasn't it, it was like 96 or something
0: uh, I think it was like 91 or 90. It was a little earlier than that. Yeah, that's right in the Disney thing. I think I just didn't like the song and I was 12 91. years old and that'll keep you out, right? I don't like it. Yeah, song. I guess so.
1: I guess so. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I feel like I didn't get to make my own movie watching decisions until I was at least 13. I don't know if I was making my decisions at 12 yet.
0: Might have helped that I was an only child, so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I did see Little Mermaid. I liked that fine. Probably at someone's birthday party the first time, but yeah, yeah. By Aladdin, I think I knew to go see them in a theater. So, (laughs) Well, I mean, Beauty and the Beast also,
1: once you start applying it to practical reality, has lots of very strange uh, connotations to it, for sure.
0: Recently, I have a friend that just, you know, hates that movie because of uh, finds it dark, like, you know, like the concept of it's so dark. He's like, I don't like that one. So
1: I mean the the morals that it teaches are kind of horrendous, right? The the actual story that you take to heart.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, Stockholm Syndrome the movie, I guess. I don't know. Although but,
1: uh, I'm really, I'm I'm very pleased at the TV series that came out. I think it was also either the late '80s or early '90s. Called Linda Beast. Hamilton. It was it was an amazing fever dream of a of a show, and and <laughs> I just remember it always being on as I was a, a little kid, and even as a little kid, like this is some really weird. Uh, acting and a really weird plot line like there was something that's just inherently sort of strange about a woman falling in love with this huge animal yeah which I... which I think ties into this too right there's there's a scene here where we've got some squirrels that that <laughs> may or may not have you know gone differently
0: yeah they they broke that younger squirrel's heart <laughs>
1: I, Wait, and I had a note here that Merlin was okay with it. He feel it feels like he was almost like nudging this little kid to, you know, go ahead. he He, he literally says something like, nature is going to take its course, and you can't do anything to stop it.
0: <laughs> Let the squirrel do it to you. i I had this weird false memory. I, I for some reason, I was like expecting Merlin to turn the squirrel into like an actual girl, which would also be weird because, you know, going from human consciousness to animal consciousness is one thing. I always like, what happens when you go the other way?
1: oh it's it's got a very uh greek and roman god feel to it right like zeus turning himself into various animals just for that explicit sort of insider act
0: yeah yeah but i i got curious about the reverse like the squirrel is now in a human body how does that work (laughs) like going the other way
1: as long as you believe in it it works right that's the whole rule as long as you think that it's the what needs to happen and you can visualize it that it happens
0: i don't know i don't think squirrels probably don't believe in anything
1: (laughs) i mean that squirrel believed in something for sure okay
0: true that 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 is true yes (laughs) but um yeah that i guess there's an unexplored thing in this i just thinking consciousness and man do we do we have much on that in general i'm just saying you're thinking that's that's fascinating where you take the cat and then you know put that into the the human mind because we always think of taking the human mind or the god mind with zeus or something and put it into the animal experience but the animal going into the human experience that i mean that's potentially really disturbing (laughs) have you ever heard of
1: something called the humanzi?
0: Oh, no, you're going to have to go on about that. <laughs> so oh man, okay,
1: all right, I'll have to I'll have to um, look some of the specific details up. I'm, I'm going to paraphrase some of it. But Humanzi was created. It was a rumored creation. It was a, a hybrid between a human and not a chimpanzee, but apes. And the original concept was, I think, a Russian scientist named uh, Ivan Ilovich or something. And he was tasked with creating super soldiers. And his idea was to basically find a way to breed apes with human females and create some kind of like a super soldier species, sort of like how you can breed a horse and a donkey and get a mule. So that was the the general premise of it. But the the very intended outcome was very much to have a a huge, super strong, jacked ape-like creature that had at least half of the intellect of a human like something like a halfway point between you know an ape and a a human being but that you could also train and that the russians would be able to send these guys out into battle as the front lines and just devastate the armies that came in their paths uh and the theories is that he was able to make some successfully but they were just like absolute abhorrent you know mutations of nature that never should have existed just complete (laughs) abominations uh but but that con- you know i'm sure someone has tried it and i and i do believe deep down without even joking about it that at some point we've had an animal in control of a human body just just because the cia was bored that day <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, it's all. I it always gets down to the just because we can do it, does that mean we should do it?
1: <laughs> if if you ever want to ruin your afternoon, just look into old Soviet experiments on dogs. uh, and they've oh, got video yeah. footage okay. of yeah, and and, and it's not it's not even gory or gruesome. I mean, it it is in in concept, <laughs> but it's almost in like a metropolis uh, sort of way. Like it's so surreal, but it's also mind blowing at. The things that they're able to do so it, it if you have any sort of doubts that anyone would try it or that it would even be possible it seems like it's very much yes to both yes people will try it and yes it's possible
0: no i we were just uh on a podcast yesterday talking about the uh, russian sleep experiments uh also with disturbing connotations what
1: are the russian sleep experiments
0: that's where they would um basically pe- keep people awake for like um you know, days, months, uh, weeks—you know, just insanely long time of not going to sleep, and you'd go complete. They'd go completely mad and start like mutilating themselves and stuff. You know, having mm-hmm. hallucinations. You know what years. That was was uh, that
1: was that before
0: MK Ultra? I think so. I want to say it was the early fifties. So this makes sense. Well, te- you still- te- technically, that know. would be
1: after MK Ultra, because depending on where you want to throw the dart on the board, it kind of starts around nineteen forty-seven or so. And then officially in 1953 but but the that research came out of, of um some notes they found in the dachau concentration camp about mescaline and all sorts of this goes into schizophrenia you mentioned the dementia earlier like this is the origins of of dementia and schizophrenia research and it dovetails directly into black magic ironically because uh, around that same time period, maybe maybe uh, three or four decades prior to us discovering those notes, Mescaline becomes uh, a, a steadfast in the the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, which then basically turns on to Alistair Crowley. And Alistair Crowley's original upbringing and his like getting his magical training wheels was pretty much on the backs of peyote and Mescaline. So there's this very direct line you can draw from... Um, dementia and schizophrenia research to psychedelics to black magic like the, the line between those three doesn't even deviate or or take a curve at any point it's a straight line through all three points
0: um the theory on these sleep experiments is 1947 but there's also talk of creepy pasta and stuff so i'm not sure about the veracity <laughs> it might just be a really good story <laughs> well there, so if, if you want a really
1: creepy version of this if, if you ever heard of dr ewan cameron
0: Oh, yeah. Psychic driving. Yes.
1: (laughs) So so in addition to his psychic driving, which is where you would just listen to like a tape on repeat, he did also um, things where he would keep you awake for long stints of time. But he also did the opposite where they would do uh, coma induced sleep and keep you in sort of not like, like an actual coma where you're completely gone, but you're just out of it for like 72 days straight and then snap you back into it. And if you didn't snap back in, it was just like, oh, I guess we're gonna need another Timmy, you know.
0: <laughs> another one down the pipe. Yeah. Um I'm I'm actually doing a, another podcast at the moment on the uh, 60 series The Prisoner, which you know every other episode has like something very you and Camry-y in it. <laughs> this where they're you know playing mind games with everyone in, uh, interesting series if you're not familiar with, it. and very, very good for you know mind control vibes and stuff.
1: <laughs> and there's uh, there's been a couple remakes of that too, I think. Are you watching the like the OG original Prisoner?
0: We're doing OG. Um, I've never seen the, the one from later. Who is I want to say Adrian Brody and Ian McClellan, maybe something like that is the more recent one. It, it was not well reviewed, uh, for no. better or for worse, but um, we might you know chase it with that and see what's up with it a bit so because i was curious to see that sort of thing you know updated even if it's not good it's just interesting to see how you know society views this kind of story differently now
1: but so so to 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 tie that all back in because it was it was a little bit of a tangent but it's 100 percent related because this movie i think is that blend of um you know this interesting time of after MK ultra has been in full effect. So you, we can no longer at this point deny that Disney might have some kind of MK ultra influence in some direct way. Like I, in this movie in particular, I can't prove any sort of like research that the CIA was telling Disney what to put in this movie, especially since Disney was probably so occupied with other projects at this point. Um, but it's, it's like MK ultra has been around for, 15 years at the bare minimum at this point. And the concept of predictive programming is not new. And at this point, they've also mentioned uh, Alice in Wonderland programming in in CIA training manuals, talking about giving people psychedelics and keeping them into these crate. And I think we went into that in the Alice in Wonderland episode. Uh, but at this point, the CIA has written about Disney stories in their own training manuals. And Disney is still putting out movies and MK Ultra is still active, so there has to be a, a feedback loop somewhere in that system. Um, I I don't know if there's ever been an, an exposed CIA agent that was also like working in the animation department. Uh, but I I feel like they were out there. It they just kept it under good wraps.
0: I mean, they at least had, had their toe in the in the uh, pool before because uh, it's pre MK Ultra. But during the war, Disney was making government films some of them classified so you know <laughs> when you're giving classified stuff i guess you're going you, you have classified information now
1: <laughs> you can find a lot of those too in like the the i think they call the prelinger archives um which is a whole collection of old commercials and shows and some of them include declassified sort of top secret presentations back then so you can actually find um some of the ones that disney helped produce uh on i think archive.org if you look for them
0: they put some of them out themselves about 20 years ago um just clearing it was their vault dvds and one of them was um uh wartime disney so uh those sets are pretty interesting i think i have a few sitting here like tomorrowland or something but yeah 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 uh you know, some of them are just like about bomb casings, you know, they're not very interesting it's like Donald Duck dealing with a bomb casing. So <laughs> it's not interesting. I would,
1: in a very morbid and inappropriate way, I would love to see what the modern version of that would be like, like the Pixar version of and here's how we uh deploy biochemical warfare and here's how we you know do uh drone uh drill bombings and you know here's the effects of white phosphorus kids uh it would be such a surreal thing to see that the exact same thing just repeated today <laughs>
0: Woody, Woody's telling you about it it's uh tom hanks's brother doing the voice in this case let me great. tell you
1: about pizza kids
0: <laughs> <laughs> um you have you heard about that um apparently outside of the Toy Story movies when you hear Woody it's usually Tom Hanks's brother it was just like uh, what do you what do you mean like like that's his way of like you know, his brother, I guess, has a similar voice. So when you hear Woody in like a ride or maybe some of the straight to video stuff, Interesting. Um, he tosses the bone to his brother so he, he can have that job because you know, he's not a superstar, I guess. So <laughs>
1: uh, well, AI is going to put him out of business pretty soon. So oh, yeah. He better, yeah. You yeah. better milk that cow as long as he can.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's plenty of weird things on that dude anyway. But uh, in that case, that's kind of cool. You know, get through throw your family a little bone where, where you can. <laughs> A, a fun creative a fun creative bone that doesn't sound good okay
1: <laughs> and, and i was thinking too i had a note here what would the modern equivalent of this same sword in the stone legend be uh like like or uh, even if it was literally a sword in the stone i was just thinking like you who would be showing up to pull this thing out you'd have elon musk showing up and jeff bezos and just every sort of like tech mogul god right would just be showing up with like joe rogan would probably show up um pumped up on creatine and and growth hormone but uh you know like what would the techniques be like what would they be trying to do i almost feel like humanity at this point wouldn't try to find the right person everyone would be like developing lasers and special acids that would dissolve the stone and like all of these high-tech shortcuts to, to get around it
0: i i feel like you have to have a physical icon in that case so i'm gonna go steve jobs so you know he he plucked the uh the apple computer from steve Wozniak, and it's now holding it up you know
1: <laughs> well and That's then he's had and then he died from eating too many apples
0: true true well he thought it was when he was a 70s hippie apparently he thought that would be a good thing to try but oops <laughs> but uh yeah i feel like because you know the store it is you got to have that that object to base it around which i guess is why my brain goes to steve jobs well, it's, we're, it's we're, a we're phallus
1: man but like let's not dance around it it's a yeah. one million percent a phallus there's no other way to interpret the entire uh <laughs> legend you know it's it's literally like can this kid put whip it out and is it big and is it strong and that's that's the whole entire equivalent of the entire story right
0: yeah basically um i don't know so maybe we can go elon musk he's got all his his rockets <laughs>
1: You're not wrong, man. You're not wrong at all. And, and honestly, I, I think uh, Elon might be a good candidate here because there's a lot of correlations in my mind between, say, Elon and Jack Parsons, who also wanted to pierce uh, the moon with his rockets in a very directly magic, black magic, Crowleyan you know, way um, so that there's definitely an aspect of passing the torch on here, even yeah. if it's if it's not, you know, intentional that it's happening.
0: I mean, yeah. Again, magic is technology, right? So, what is the most impressive technology is the the um, the magician of the modern age, I suppose.
1: So, and, and I had another note here that my I think my favorite scene that I remember the most from this because again, I, I probably watched this particular VHS cassette more than any other was the freaking wizard duel at the end because not only is a wizard duel probably the coolest uh, you know two words you can put together in the human English <laughs> language, but the actual sequence of all the different things they go through and this is one of those elements where I really liked how they tied the animation and the story together because as he goes through these sequence, right? So first it, it starts out as um he turns into she turns into a pink gator and then he turns into a turtle and then she turns into a fox uh, and then he, or he turns into a caterpillar. Then she turns into a chicken. So it turns into this like he, like a tit for tat. He does something and she goes a little bit bigger and he keeps going small. Because in that original scene when he's training Arthur as a little fish, he's telling him, like, you have to figure out how to defend yourself, even as this little small creature. And first he has to fend off the frog, and then it immediately elevates so I'm going to say a barracuda. I don't remember exactly what it was. Then he has to fight like a barracuda. And this gets completely replayed in that final scene because, again, Merlin is staying these little tiny animals versus this big animal. And he has to kind of outsmart it and he does some of the exact same moves that Arthur does where he swims through the little link in the chain to kind of like outsmart, you know, the the big fish that's chasing him and something very similar where Merlin turns into a little caterpillar and he sneaks into a log and then she gets stuck into the log. Um, so like I, I love that aspect of just from a storytelling perspective of, you know, like it's a callback. it's a it's a really cool callback of here, I'm gonna re reshow you what you kind of learned earlier, and here's how you apply it in an actual freaking wizard duel. Um, but I, I love that part. And then again, to put the bow on top of the very ending, uh, I saw your note here. But yeah, Merlin turns into a pandemic, essentially. They they milk it down because it's like, oh, yeah, you'll be fine. You're just going to be bedridden for two weeks. <laughs> uh, you're going to need sunlight because you, there might be a vitamin D deficiency. Uh, and then you're going to basically be bedridden and, you know, weak until you get over this, which is kind of like puts you out so that the witch is working from home for a couple weeks at least. Uh, which, yeah, it, it feels like if you did that in modern day, uh, it would happen, right? Like, we, maybe Merlin is is with us now, and he might have had a little hand in this, just bumbling around.
0: <laughs> well, he'd certainly know about it, wouldn't he? <laughs> coming from the future and all
1: <laughs> well, and since he's got that quantum leap dynamic where he can like replay and know how things need to happen in order for that to happen there there's almost like that god paradox right like if you're uh omnipotent and you still allow it to happen and you're omniscient as well then you're kind of part of the system right so merlin in that way is is sharing some of the responsibility for every tragedy that has ever happened uh, in history since the 1100 based on the premise, this movie sets up.
0: Yeah. Although I guess there is the idea if you were to change those events, you know, you'd, you'd butterfly effect it, right?
1: Uh, Maybe. Although, isn't that what Merlin's doing is, I mean, he's leading that kid into the little uh, hut in the woods so that he can train him to pull that sword out. Like That's at least that's what it, the movie starts out with. I know where Arthur is right now. Here's what he's doing here's his current reaction and therefore implying everything's going according to plan that's sort of that the original premise this entire movie starts out on is that Merlin is just watching this chess game unfold and has some kind of influence over where the pieces are set
0: one other thing that I feel like in the modern day we tend to think that authorian legend would be more like 600 700 date wise you know well and... I
1: I I looked up specifically on when um the general accepted range of when this particular sword in the stone story would have taken place and it ranges from like 800 to 1100 or so um but yeah the actual arterian Legend uh wouldn't line up quite well with the the same story that uh results in this old dude taking this little kid away and then flying off the Bermuda
0: I mean, I guess part of the charm of the legends is that there just isn't like a, you know, one solid source to go to. So depending on how you come at it, it could be quite different uh, from different angles. So a historian's going to be looking at something very different than, say, a uh, literature person, you know
1: well yeah that's and that's the same thing that sends a literature person out into the woods and think that they're going to turn into a survivalist because of all the romantic notions uh behind it right
0: yeah because I've right, like i'm thinking right now well if i just like screwed off into the mountains i mean they'd like, be a ninja i'm in japan this is the, actually ninja country man but uh, yeah i'd obviously like very quickly uh Fail for most likely. (laughs) So I've got a, a, a dumb American question, but
1: is there an equivalent of like a survivalist in Japan, or is that just considered rural? Or is there like a specific? You know, I don't know. Like in America, there's a very specific niche of survivalists and homesteaders where they intentionally want to get off the grid so that they don't rely on big government for electricity and supplies and you know regulation and stuff. But it's it's very much like a political independent. I want to live off the grid and outside of like the big brother's eye almost as like a a defiant, you know, revolutionary aspect to it. Um, And, you know, they, they tend to, you know, hunt and shoot their own meat and build their log cabins and and everything. Is there a direct equivalent uh, in Japan to that same kind of concept?
0: I would say no, especially not politically, but uh, in some mountain places there are family homes and some, some elderly people living in places that have, basically been forgotten so they just kind of accidentally live off the grid i okay, guess that's part of yeah. an aging society you start you know as the population gets older you start forgetting about certain places <laughs> <laughs> the kids stop visiting
1: and, and showing off all the new technology so there's there's some places out in japan where the last time they've seen a phone was like the old nokia brick and they haven't seen a new one since
0: yeah for sure i mean there's probably stores where you can go buy one (laughs) just it's like this family business that's just still there for some reason and mom and pa are now 80 years old and i don't know what they're doing but
1: (laughs) so so i guess there's not some like an idea of you know i'm sick with modern technology in the modern world and i'm just gonna turn into a homesteader like is there that version anywhere
0: not really i think it's uh, one thing you know like Unless it's necessary, Japanese folks probably aren't going to share their opinions about much. <laughs> like you don't really know what anyone's political opinions are. <laughs> Which is, yeah, I guess quite different than America these days. But uh <laughs> Well,
1: everyone's got it on their shirt or the, the bumper sticker on the back of their car. You don't even have to ask. You already know.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's no bumper stickers on the car. And um yeah, people want want to avoid conflict. That's like a Eastern vibe, you know, avoiding conflict. So sharing opinions uh forthright tends to start conflicts (laughs) of course sometimes it's great to just get in a nice debate but that's kind of the american thing we you know japanese don't want to do that so much so yeah so i'm I'm gonna say here's what we have in japan we have the um i haven't seen them so much recently but political seasons are going around these black bands are very like you know i am like, they were like, Japan was at its best in the 30s.
1: <laughs>
0: Wait, what? <laughs> There's a political party that goes around in black bands, you know, kind of like xenophobic. And and I, I feel like their basic vibe is Japan was like on the right path, like in the 30s, when it had like a hardcore insulated government and started a war, I guess. I don't know. Um <laughs>
1: What would that look like, though? Just uh, just uh, Japanese only? And like, does that mean you're you're out?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. They they don't. Yeah, they don't seem like too keen on bringing in foreigners, that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's kind of xenophobic. To be fair, I, I haven't seen them much in the past six years or so. But before that, I do remember seeing them during political seasons around more. So
1: is that, is that the only change? Is you just see black vans every once in a while and and otherwise you wouldn't know that there's a political campaigns going on or does it, does it envelop society in a bigger way than that?
0: Um, you just get, you know, like loud vans driving around with different political points. You know, people like waving from the windows. It's, it's noise pollution. You know, in Japan, usually people are very, try not to be noisy, but the rules go out the window for political season for some reason and you're allowed to just drive around making a ton of noise. Interesting,
1: uh, and whoever annoys you the most gets your vote. Is that how it works?
0: Yeah, I guess. Well, the status quo usually sounds gets the like votes. the premise, right? <laughs> that that's what that's how, uh, how Abe got assassinated. He was doing one of those stops and with one of those vans, and then someone came up. So uh, that also, I, I'm curious in the next few election cycles if that's like doesn't happen as much anymore.
1: <laughs> Do they not have like little pope mobiles with the little bulletproof glass where they can just kind of like wave and the bullets just bounce off?
0: No, sometimes they're on the roof, you know, like just open air Kennedy style. So <laughs> they they didn't. Yeah, we, didn't America learned
1: really. its lesson after that one, for sure.
0: So I am curious if, you know, obviously, being, of course, uh, Japan has also had prime ministers and ex prime ministers publicly assassinated before. It's just it's been a while. <laughs> I think it's just
1: one of those coming of age things that every sort of uh, government and society goes through. Right? You have to have one of your leaders assassinated before you turn into like a legit uh, sort of country, like an established power. You have to have a couple assassinations under your belt.
0: Um, I, I do need to wind down, but just one other thing about the Abe thing. Um, the guy that shot him basically achieved his goal. He was. Do you know the motivation in that no, shooting?
1: No, I'm, I mean, I've, I remember it in the news, but I never looked into it beyond that
0: basically the the moonies the uh unification church i think or whatever it's called oh yeah the yeah. moonies well,
1: had... washington post right or washington something or other
0: yeah so they basically insinuated themselves with lobbying and bribes and things like that into the ruling party of japan the ldp and uh his mother had been like basically you know uh left out to dry uh because of giving contributions to this religious organization that's tied in with this political party so he was like i want people to know about this and uh since he's done that well again you should never shoot anyone but since then now everybody knows that this party's been in cahoots with the moonies several cabinet uh, posts have had to leave because of it so i'm like well he actually did achieve his goal that's kind of (laughs) weird
1: well and that's interesting because the moonies have shaped american culture in quite a big way too
0: Right, so I mean, it's really...
1: There, there's a lot of conspiracy theories that came specifically from Mooney uh, newspapers and were like the, the original, you know, sort of purveyors of a lot of those theories.
0: But yeah, his goal was to bring it to light now it is to light so again never shoot anyone i mean i i think they're now just they've been psychologically assessing him for six months who knows what that means but i I think they're are are there
1: any uh like conspiracy theories within japan about that like oh it was a government hit or it was an inside job or it was a mind control operation or any of
0: those i haven't heard much about that um it seemed the guy had a really specific goal that actually that's, that's the weird thing. Usually an assassin doesn't really like, like uh, what's his name did not impress Jody Foster, you know? Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it, so what he did is horrible, but he actually succeeded, I guess, which is interesting. <laughs> uh, I
1: mean, again, the Moonies are at least efficient and the crazy stuff that they do.
0: Yeah. And that's, that's headline. That's been headline news ever since in Japan. So yeah, kind of weird. Um, I do need to wind this one down, but did you have any final points you wanted to throw out on this movie?
1: Uh, Well, yeah, the, it used to be my favorite, I thought, until A, I... I... Wish I wouldn't have done the historical research at all. (laughs) And especially not before I rewatched it. I really do wish I had just watched the movie first and then been like, Oh, Oh, this is interesting that there's these extra connotations. But again, now I I'm never going to be able to watch this movie again and not see this old dude luring a little kid into the woods. It's just the weirdest (laughs) scene. And I, again, I I really wish that I hadn't have, have gone through that experience Cause I feel like a little part of me died uh, in the process of doing that. And uh, I almost don't want to do any research into uh, Robin hood. I want to just watch the movie, but I might still do that one. But man, if, if, if anyone ruins Robin hood for me, I'm going to be absolutely devastated by the next time we get to that.
0: You could do it in the opposite order. Cause I I tell people we're not out to like destroy these movies because we're not. But yeah, we might have given I've, this one a switch. Again, kick this is my crutch. favorite.
1: Love I love this movie. <laughs> I'll still love the movie. And and again, it's it's not like the the movie did anything wrong or the animators or the the uh, people that adapted the screenplay did anything horrible. And even the original author, I'm not even saying that he did anything bad. And in fact, there's a lot of mixed um sort of Criticisms and stories of his, you know, biographies based on T.H. White, and lots of debate over what his his real life and his struggles really were. But he absolutely was a tortured soul, and it came out in these books. Um, and the movie just re a lot of those sort of archetypes. Um, but I, it did inspire me. I want to read the original four or five books because it seems like there might be some really interesting kind of like human story element to that like just this this kid that grew up in a cruel world And he hated it so much that he retreated into nature, um, but he was, you know, wasn't able to, to cut it in nature. So they just kind of like wrote fantasy versions of people that were able to turn into animals and communicate with animals and just vibe with nature because they were so removed from, you know, cruel humanity. And this kind of just like persisted throughout his entire life. So I, I feel like the, the things that he wrote were definitely worth checking out. Um, But yeah, Look into the his backstory only if you want to be creeped out and not be able to watch this movie in the same way or even read the books again. Because I imagine you invest all that time in reading the books. There's a lot more detail. Uh, and I, I almost wish I had read them before this, but uh, th- that'll be have to be like a, a side project. That'll be extra credit.
0: Yeah, I had that thought. But I was like, yeah, it's still a pretty thick book.
1: <laughs> it's Yeah, there's a number <laughs> of them too. Because uh, you can't just do the first one. You'd have to read all the way up until the, the fifth book.
0: Right. Well, for this movie, you get away with first, but yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a it is an ep- a proper epic, of course. Well, not really though, because you <laughs>
1: have to read the fifth book about Merlin to know if he really goes to Bermuda or not.
0: Oh, yeah, good point. Oh, this is the last one Bermuda? Is because okay? again, if
1: he lives in the future, then Merlin's story isn't you know set in just that first book. You'd have to read all of them, and maybe even read them in reverse order, based on your original theory, right? That he's actually living in reverse time, where he starts in the future and works his way back to uh, to Arthur.
0: I guess I'm thinking Tenant. Isn't that how Tenant works? <laughs> He's got and, a turnstile somewhere.
1: So actually, there, there is one other thing I'd like to drop. Since so you mentioned Tenet, which is uh such an interesting coincidence because tenant, uh the the basis for that movie's name is from a magical square. I think it's the square of Saturn specifically. Um, uh, and and the way that you create these little magical squares is making a little grid of the planet's number. So it will be like a six by six or a seven by seven, depending on what planet planet you go with. So tenant is a, f- a five by five, right? T E N E T five letter word. And the way that you can put it on this magical square. And I think it's called the, also the Satori square. It might be, um, and it's it's very related to this concept of abracadabra because abracadabra was a similar a similar magical incantation that took the form of a shape, but abracadabra was a triangle or like a little pyramid. And the way that you would write it is you would start with the whole word and then write under it and just keep removing one letter from it as you would go down. And it would be able to spell itself in, in multiple ways that you would look at it. Um, and in this movie, they say, uh, alakazam a lot and they say a couple other ones that are sort of similar but those are all variations on abracadabra so there's a an interesting link between the word abracadabra and the word tenant and the concept that bridges both of those together which is sort of this combination of magic and gematria and, and geometry
0: so maybe robert pattinson is our, is our modern excuse me our modern merlin i don't know he's the one going backwards i think I don't, <laughs> it's been a while i watched it once and uh it, you probably have to watch it twice, I guess.
1: <laughs> or, yeah, four or five or six times. Yeah. yeah. I've I've got a few movie buff friends that are absolutely convinced that um, Tenet includes all sorts of esoteric information and that uh, like they're giving away, you know, sort of the recipe to all sorts of black magic in there. I haven't found it myself yet. You see, uh, for maybe... me,
0: looking for that sort of thing in a Kubrick movie is like fun, but looking for it in Tenet just seems like it would be a headache. <laughs> you're not wrong. Yeah, you're not wrong at all. I mean the movie's fine, but um, I, I did, yeah. But I, it just seems like trying to crack that egg would be like more trouble than it's worth. I don't know.
1: <laughs> well, so we're we're a ways away from getting to AI. I think AI was a Disney movie, wasn't it? Or no? Uh,
0: I'm not. Or it was. Sure. It was Spielberg. So probably. Oh no! Not, not. No! No! It wasn't um, Spielberg. He's but yeah, talking study. about
1: uh, Kubrick and occultism and secrets, the um, I recently found out that the original screenplay for AI was vastly different than anything remotely close to what Spielberg ended up doing with it. And you can find some of Kubrick's original notes in his own archives in his little boxes. We have to like have some sort of a degree or you know like an actual research intent in order to get access to them. Uh, but the original notes for AI was just one hundred percent occultism. It was like an alchemical workbook, essentially.
0: Well, I guess eyes wide shut achieved that to some degree anyway. So
1: <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's a whole extra theory in there is that he didn't get to put his version out because he revealed too much of it,
0: yeah, yeah, I, I love that that little bit. Like there's twenty minutes more of the party that we don't see or something
1: <laughs> that and it and it was shot in uh, the Rothschild Mansion, which is the same place that. Um, something called the Surreal Ball of 1970 something. They did it multiple times, and it was hosted. I think like their their guest um, invite was Salvador Dali at one point. But a lot of that movie was based on like those costume balls, and then mixed with a little, you know, the little kinky sex orgy part.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that, that that that's its own can of worms, I guess. Um, I do need a shutter for today, but uh, this is late February, I believe. Anything you want to throw out there?
1: Uh, yeah, just paranoidamerican.com. The new website is going great. I've got all of the comics now in digital form. So if you don't want to worry about shipping or figuring out uh, how to get it to you know your various countries. And by the way, we are shipping in Japan. So if you go on Amazon and search for Paranoid American, you should be able to find um, almost all of our, our books uh, in English so far. Uh, but yeah, and the website—if you want to just download a version of a lot of our comics and books—so paranoidamerican.com—and we'll probably be doubling the amount of titles available by the end of this year. Uh, so lots, lots more of specific titles to share with you in the in the coming episodes.
0: Um, as for me, I I do all the podcasting here, of course. I call it Disney. Uh, we talk about sci-fi films at Matt and Luke's Sci-Fi Sanctuary the twilight zone at a time enough podcast and uh, i mentioned we're um, doing the prisoner right now so the name of that uh which several people people give me weird looks when i tell them the name of that podcast which is imprisoned in prison an uh the prisoner prison cast so that's the name of that one (laughs) (laughs) you should get that as a dot (laughs) com yeah yeah probably (laughs) it might be Uh, available you never know. But it gets weird. and It's out already, so someone could have grabbed it, you know? <laughs> <That's right. laughs> okay, well, I'm going to go uh, scuttle off into the woods and see if I can pull a stone out of a sword. Stone yeah, out yeah. of a sword. That's what I'm going to do, yeah.
1: Go find a cute squirrel and, and uh, yeah, figure out what to do with it. <laughs>